Thank you for downloading the following message from the Pickerington Church of Christ. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you walk with the Lord. For more information or to find additional resources, locate us on the web at pickeringtonchurch.org. Enjoy the message. Fixing your eyes on Jesus. The sentiment comes from Hebrews chapter 12 where the Hebrew writer tells us if we're going to have endurance in this life of faith, the only way we're going to survive is if we get our eyes off of ourselves and off the world and on to Jesus Christ. Paul also tells us that when we look at Jesus, we become like him. And so if we're going to transform into the image of God and look like Jesus Christ, we've got to fix our eyes on him and get to know him. And so we come to another story this morning about Jesus with some people that becomes pretty interesting. About four years ago, Glamour magazine decided to interview um, people ranging from five years old to 75 years old. A person from every year of their life, five, six, seven, eight, all the way up to 75. And they asked them on camera to answer one question. And the question was this, what do you want to be remembered for? When life is all said and done, what do you want to be remembered for? And the answers, as you can imagine, for the five-year-old and six-year-old were pretty cute. Some of them were funny. Um, some of them were a little scary. And, uh, as the, and they just clipped these films together, five, six, seven. They show, what do you want to be remembered for? And the answers were so intriguing. You know, some people wanted to be remembered for things about their personality, like that I was a fun person or that I was always smiling or I was making people happy. Some people want to be remembered for their character, like I would just want to be remembered for being hardworking or disciplined or um, willing to lend a hand and help out. Some people want to be remembered for achievement, like it was cute to listen to some of the kids say, I want to be remembered for being, you know, a world-famous astronaut or something like that. Or, and even as you got older, though, into the Middle Ages, people wanted to say, I want to be remembered for changing the world or making an impact, doing something big. All those people wanted to be remembered fondly. Everybody, when they thought about how do I want to be remembered when my life is over, everybody said, in some way, shape, or form, when people think about me, I want to be remembered fondly. I want them to think good thoughts about me. But no one said, 5 to 75, nobody said, when I'm gone... I want to be remembered for having a message that you must believe. Nobody said that. They just really kind of thought about, and I, and I think of it this way in my own life, being thought of well by those I've left behind or maybe thinking about uh, the kind of legacy you have. But nobody really said in this thing, and I had not really thought about it, that I want to be remembered for the message that I've given to these people. That'd be kind of weird, actually, to say it that way. But this is actually what happens in this story that Barry read for us with Mary when she breaks the about pop-sized can of uh, a flask of oil and anoints Jesus' head and then his feet before his burial. This is before his crucifixion. She wasn't really thinking about what her legacy would be. She wasn't really thinking about, Mary wasn't thinking about that day when she did this great act of worship. She wasn't thinking about, how will I be remembered for doing this? She just expressed her devotion, her love, her sincerity to Jesus, and that's all she knew to do. 
And yet, in doing that, Jesus said she left a message for every person to hear. This story in John chapter 12 is also told in Matthew chapter 26 and in Mark chapter 14. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to read a few passages out of Mark 14 so you can turn there. I'll show you a few in just a moment. But one of the things that Jesus said about this act that Mary did of breaking um, open the vessel and then anointing Jesus' head and then his feet with this expensive oil, Jesus said in Mark chapter 14 and in Matthew chapter 26, wherever the gospel is preached for the rest of history, what Mary has done right now will be told in honor of her. What Mary did in that moment coincides with the message of Jesus Christ. Here's what Jesus is saying. The story of what Mary did that day must always be told with the story of what Jesus did. Can you believe that? That Jesus puts on par with what he's going to do in the gospel with what Mary did that night in her home at dinner. Why? Sounds strange, doesn't it? I think back and think, well, I've preached the gospel for a few years now. Try to preach the gospel every time I preach, I should say it that way. And I'm not sure I always remember the message of Mary's event this night. So let's try to figure this out. What does this mean, this seemingly insignificant moment that was between Jesus and Mary? What's the eternal significance of what she did by anointing his head and his feet with this expensive oil? It sounds strange, but let's learn today the action of Mary, the attitude of Judas, and the answer of Jesus. Let's start with the action of Mary. As I mentioned to you, all the Gospels, well, Matthew, Mark, and John, give us details about the story. And we learn that this event happened at Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' home. But in Matthew and Mark's account, it says that it happens at Simon the leper's house. One may assume maybe that Simon was their father, maybe he was a leper that Jesus healed at some time. Perhaps that's what really actually began their relationship, and then we see later um, Martha and Mary connected to Jesus the rest of their lives. But regardless, that's where it's at. They're having dinner, and all Mary does is bring out this um, vessel of oil that's about the size of a popkin, breaks it open, pours it all out on his head and then onto his feet, and wipes his feet with her hair. The whole room begets, becomes filled with the smell, and some of the disciples don't like it. What exactly is this message here? What's the significance? Well, the first thing we got to know is this. Her action, Mary's action, was provoked by what she considered, what she thought about. That night, Mary had a lot on her mind. There was a lot going on in what she was thinking about. A lot of things were taking place, especially about Jesus. And what we learn about Mary is that Jesus becomes this important figure in her life. He's always on her mind. She has known him for a while, and the very first time that we meet Mary in the gospel story, we find her sitting at the feet of Jesus. If you don't remember the story, Mary and Martha are hosting Jesus, and Martha's running around busying herself with all the things that need to be done when you're a host and having somebody in your home. But we see Mary sitting at Jesus' feet, which was not common for a woman to be doing in that day and age. That seat was reserved for the, those disciples who were following after Jesus. But Mary said, I've got to sit at this man's feet and hear what this man is saying. That's the first sign we see of Mary, that she is lowering herself to listen to Jesus 
as a master. And this posture of Mary defines her life. The second time we see Mary is after Lazarus died. So in John chapter 11, just before this dinner event, um, which is actually a dinner that is given at um, their house to thank Jesus for what he did, he raised Lazarus, their brother, back to life. They send message to Jesus. He's far away. He hears that Lazarus is dying, and he's not well, and he's probably going to die, and he waits. Let Lazarus die. Lazarus goes into the tomb. He's there for four days. Jesus shows up. Martha runs out and says, Jesus, if you were here, he wouldn't have died. Jesus reasons with her about resurrection, life, death, and teaches her some things. I'm the resurrection and life. She says, okay. Goes and gets Mary. Mary didn't go out to see Jesus at the beginning. She's brokenhearted about her brother. She's weeping. She might even be a little bit disappointed with Jesus because he didn't come. Then finally she makes her way out to Jesus. And again, Mary finds herself falling at his feet. And she's weeping. And she says, Jesus, if you were here, he wouldn't have died. And then Jesus raises Lazarus back to life four days later. And just a little while longer in John chapter 12, then following that event, they have this dinner to thank Jesus for what he had done. You see, her action happened. This anointing of Jesus' head and feet happened in response to her experiences with Jesus. It shaped her life. But her action wasn't just provoked by what she considered. It was profound because of what it cost her. So when the disciples start complaining, we learn that this um, flask of oil was worth about 300 denarii. You know how much money that is? Roughly about $40,000 today. That's some cabbage, isn't it? $40,000. And Mary and Martha and Lazarus weren't rich people. You know how we know? Because Martha's serving. They don't have servants in the house. Mary's washing feet. They don't have servants. They're not rich people. They don't have two pennies to rub together. And she gets the one thing that is probably her family's life savings. The thing that's going to secure them for the rest of their life. And she breaks it and pours the whole thing out on Jesus' head and Jesus' feet. That's costly, isn't it? I mean, that's real, tangible cost to tell Jesus you mean a lot to me but it didn't just cost her money it cost Mary her position she finds herself bowing down at his feet and washing his feet crying and there's tears and there's hair and she's wiping them up this is the job of the servant this is where Mary finds herself she gives up her position as host to be the position of the lowly lowest on the rung servant that's what Mary's willing to do it cost her position but it wasn't just her position or even her money. It cost her her own glory. Now watch. Hair for a woman in this day and age was the sign of her glory. It was the sign of her beauty. It was the sign of her health. If you saw a woman with unkempt hair, she was not beautiful. If you saw a woman that had ratty or missing hair, she might not have been healthy. Hair that was taken care of for a woman was a sign of health. It was a sign of wealth. It was a sign of success. It was a sign of glory and honor. It was a sign of beauty. And Mary lets down her hair and these stinky, dirty feet washes it with her hair. She said, anything about me that would give me any glory and honor, I transfer to you, Jesus, because I deserve all the dirt and the filth that's on you. 
I want you to be anointed. I want you to be cared for. This is what Mary did for her. All of this, her position, her glory, her money was freely given for the sake of saying this one thing to Jesus. You mean everything to me. Are you starting to see why Jesus said whenever you preach the gospel, you better tell what Mary did. Because she said to Jesus, I give you everything. You mean the world to me. That's why her story's got to be told. Because you can't receive the gospel with half-hearted interest. You can't receive what Jesus has done for you with measly sort of, eh, that's kind of intriguing, not bad. You can't walk with Christ with one foot in and one foot out. You see, listen, there's no such thing as cost-less Christianity. The great tragedy of the American church, it's done many, many wonderful things, but the great tragedy of comfortable, content American Christianity is that we have taught people you can follow Jesus at zero cost to your life. What does it cost you to follow Jesus? What have you looked at and said, I can't because I'm doing this? What have you looked at and said, I would enjoy doing this, I want to do this, I would rather, but Jesus, you deserve my all. I give you everything. This is hard to do. It's so hard to do. There are forces constantly pushing against this level of commitment, and we see this in the way that Judas and the disciples respond. So let's look at the attitude of Judas. We see in Matthew and Mark that it says the disciples were indignant with Mary. They were angry at her for doing this. They couldn't believe it. John tells us specifically that it was Judas who spoke up, but all of them are agreeing with Judas when he says, oh my goodness, why would she do this? And they actually begin to scold Mary. Shame on you, Mary. Why in the world would you do this? They want her to feel bad about this expression of love. And there's a word in Mark chapter 14 that jumps off the page. Listen to when I read it to you. In verse 4 it says, there were some who said to themselves indignantly, or that means full of rage and full of anger. They see Mary doing this, and they are raging over this. Well, why? It's not their oil, is it? It's not their life savings. Why are they so mad about it? Now watch what they say in verse 4. Why was the ointment wasted like that? Do you see the word that jumps off the page? They look at what Mary did, and they said, you are wasting this nard. You are wasting this oil, this perfume, this, this um, beautiful uh, treasure that you have. It's wasted on Jesus. Wow. What a waste to do this. Why in the world would you waste yourself in this way on Jesus? You see, this scene between the disciples and Mary depicts for us as clear as day, the criticism that many people will give you when you devote your life to Jesus Christ. And here's what many people will say. Don't waste your life doing that. Don't waste your life doing this. It is a waste of time. It is a waste of money. It is a waste of resources. It is a waste of all that you are, your gifts, talents, and abilities to devote yourself fully to Jesus. You've got other places to invest. Don't waste your life on Jesus. Now, what makes us use the word waste? Have you thought about that? He didn't say, don't ruin this flask of oil. Don't spill it. Don't use it in too quick of a way or in too many places. He says, don't waste it. 
What makes us use the word waste? It's actually very simple, but very specific. We consider something a waste when the cost doesn't match the value. That's it. You are very specific when you use the word waste. When the cost doesn't match the value. And what is Judas and the disciples saying to Mary? Jesus isn't worth it. They haven't yet come face to face with the value of who Jesus is. The gospel will drive you to the point where you've got to look Jesus in the eye and say, how much is he actually worth? Is it 40000 400000 What's he worth? That's what Mary, all she's doing in this moment is expressing he's worth everything. And the disciples go, what a waste. Why would you do this? I know something about waste. I watch this with my kids whenever they get a little bit of money, you know, and they think and think. My, my Reed is the big saver, and he, when he makes a purchase, man, he's thought about it for like months. He's researched it. He's asked a few questions or a million questions, and he gets to this point where he makes a purchase, and if he feels like he's made the wrong purchase, man, he like breaks his heart. He's like crying about it. We're like, dude, it's cool. You'll have another birthday. You'll get some more money. Relax. But what's happening to him in that moment is the cost of what he's just spent, he doesn't see the value in what he's bought anymore. And immediately feels like a loss, a waste to him. You see, the reason we would ever consider giving, Jesus, giving our life to Jesus as a waste is only because we're unsure of his value. The only reason you hold back any percentage of your life, your time, your money, your attitude, your commitment. The only reason you hold back any percentage of that is that you are not yet fully convinced of his value. That's why Jesus said when the gospel is preached, we've got to preach what Mary did. His value. The one question that makes us doubt Jesus' value over and over is this. Are you sure there's not something better? Are you sure? This is what permeates our fear. This is what drives our insecurity about this. This is what makes us wonder, like, can I go all in? Should I really devote myself to Jesus? We're constantly sort of hedging our bet with this. Are we sure? Are you sure there's not something better to commit your life to than Jesus Christ? And I'll be honest with you, you know this is hard. This is hard for us. It's not just for young people hard. I know it's hard for young people to wonder about this, but this is hard for all of us. Because in this world we live in, there are a lot of options, but they're not just a lot of options. There's a lot of promises being made to you. Every major life decision that you have to make comes with promises that says, once you get me, once you have me, once you accomplish this, you'll be happy, you'll be satisfied. I'm worth it. There's a lot of things saying that to you. And we go through these questions over and over. We wonder, are we sure we should commit our full self to Jesus Christ? We do things like, well, okay, listen, once I get through school and figure out my career, then I get that nailed down and I know where I am, then I'm going to commit all the way to Jesus. But then we get there and we go, okay, well, wait a minute, listen, i got to really find somebody to settle down with and find that person in my life. And when I get that figured out, then we're going to be all in for Jesus. We're doing it. And then you get to that point and you go, okay, well, listen, i got to figure out where we're going to buy this house. And maybe a kid comes along or two kids and you go, okay, listen, i got to get this work figured out and my marriage and my kids and this home. And I'm, I'm just so busy. But when I get, there's going to be a day when it calms down and I'm going to be all in for Jesus when it finally calms down. And then you get later into your career and you go, oh, man, 
I've got to buckle down on savings because I can't retire unless I save enough. And you go, listen, okay, there's going to be a moment, I promise, Jesus, in a year, in two years, in five years, when I get this stuff sorted out, I'm all in then. And you find yourself at the end of life listening to the promises of other people and other things and not Jesus when he says, follow me, I'm worth it. Be all in. For us to figure this out earlier than later, you got to do what Mary did. You want to figure this out? you got to do exactly what Mary did. What did Mary do? How did she know Jesus was worth it? She didn't just look at her life. She looked at somebody else's life. She looked at Lazarus, her brother. She looked at his life and saw the impact Jesus had and said, I've seen what Jesus has done for Lazarus. I am certain he's, Jesus is worth it. Now listen to me, young people. Look at other people's lives who have committed themselves to Jesus. All the way. No hold back. Nothing holding back. Look at their life and say, do they regret it? Did it go well for them? Are they content and happy? Would they go back and change it? I have yet to meet one person who has gone all the way in their life for Jesus Christ to come back and say, you know what, I would have got 80%. I would have put 20 somewhere else. I've yet to meet one person. So here's the answer. Look at other lives, people you love and respect, who have gone all in for Jesus and say, was it worth it for them? And they'll tell you it was worth it. Do what Mary did. Look at their life and say, it was worth it. It's going to be worth it for me. Let's lastly look at how Jesus answered, and we'll be all done. The first thing I want you to see about Jesus, the way he answered Judas and the disciples, is really simple. It's really cool. Jesus had Mary's back. Did you notice that? They start clamoring about her, like, oh, what a waste. What's she doing, man? They're mad about it. And he goes, you leave her alone. <laughs> I just imagine like at the playground, right? Like a couple fingers in the chest, like leave her alone. And don't, don't go past that statement. Jesus is a true friend because he always has your back. You want to know who a friend is? A friend is a person who has your back when you're not around. Can I cue you into something? You don't have very many of those. You don't. You don't have very many people that when you're not around will stand up and defend you and protect you and honor you. And these people are trashing Mary, saying she's foolish for what she's done, and Jesus says, shut up, leave her alone. He has her back. And when you're all in walking with Christ, he has your back against the people attacking you. He has her back. And look what he says. He says, what she did was beautiful. I love this statement from Jesus. He says, what she's done is beautiful. You notice he doesn't say what she's done is useful. He doesn't say what she's done is economical. He doesn't say what she's done is um, strategically wise based upon the logic she's used to earn herself. He says, what this lady did, it's, it may not make financial sense right now. It may not make logical human sense, but what this woman did was beautiful. And what that means is it's pure. It's genuine. It's sincere devotion to Jesus. Out of all that you can do in life, this is the one thing that you can do that is beautiful. And here's what's beautiful about this. This unreserved commitment to Jesus is beautiful, not just because it's beautiful to see, but because it makes you beautiful. When you commit completely, full devotion to Jesus Christ, it doesn't just change how you relate to Jesus. It changes how you relate to the rest of the world. It makes you patient. It makes you kind. It makes you loving. It makes you selfless. It makes you a servant. When you love Jesus with everything you got, you become a beautiful person that's what's beautiful about this but jesus didn't just say it was beautiful jesus said 
what she did was enough. In Mark, it says this. Jesus said she has done what she could. Mary has done what she could. And here's what he's getting at. Mary didn't set the standard for, okay, listen, you want to commit to Jesus? 40 grand. That's what it costs to be in, okay? That's not what Jesus said. He doesn't say, listen, you want to be in? You got to grab your 401k, your retirement account. I got to have it. If I get that, then you're in. That's not what he says. He says she did what she could with what she had, meaning it's enough. It's enough. Now, notice the critique of the disciples. They say she wasted it because it was not a useful thing to do. She's saying, Mary, we could have sold this for a lot of money and given it to the poor. What you did wasn't useful. It wasn't strategic. And Jesus says, no, listen, she's done enough. Jesus does not measure your value based upon your usefulness. He does not measure your value based upon your usefulness. We get this so mixed up sometimes. Satan deceives us so often. This is his trap to make you think you earn Jesus' love by the work you do for him. So go be really, really useful for Jesus, away from Jesus, and then bring back to him all your conquering achievements and usefulness, and then Jesus will go, okay, son or daughter, now I love you because you've been useful. That's not how it works. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said to people who had prophesied in his name, cast out demons in his name, done wonders in his name, he says, depart from me because I don't know you. And you don't know me. Jesus does not measure us based upon ability, but availability. How much of your life is available to Jesus? That's when it's enough. You see, the timing of this story is really interesting. Mary here shows us that if we're going to follow Jesus, we must anoint his head, crown him king. We must fall at his feet and be his servant. And we must give him our all. And when you preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you don't hear that message alongside of it, you're going to miss the eternal joy and peace that Jesus has. There's nothing less than that. Now this message must be heard because anything less than that is you just hedging your bet and trusting yourself that you're going to find eternal joy on your own and you won't find it on your own. Mary's message must be heard, but it's got to be heard with the gospel because this message of crowning Jesus king and falling at his feet and giving him your all, if you don't hear the gospel first, it's not going to make sense to you. You might not want to do it. And the timing of this scene is really important. All of the writers in the gospel put this story right after the chief priests and the Pharisees get together and they say this. It's so ironic. After Jesus does some miracles, the chief priests, the Pharisees get together and they go, oh man, this is bad. Lazarus has been raised from the dead. What are people going to think? And they say, guys, we have to kill Jesus so that we can be saved. They don't even know what they just said. What they're thinking about is Rome. They're thinking if this uprising happens and people think Jesus is powerful, Rome's going to come in and kill us. And so we got to kill Jesus to save the rest of us. They don't even know what they're saying. That's exactly true, guys, but not the way you think it. But they have to be careful with the timing because it's Passover. How ironic, right? Passover is the holiday, the celebration of the Jewish people where an innocent lamb must die so that its blood will let the death angel pass over people so that they don't die. 
You think God's an author? Isn't that amazing? He could have picked any day of the year to have Jesus crucified, right? But he waited till the week of Passover so you won't forget that the blood of an innocent lamb spread over our doorpost saying, I trust him, allows the death angel to pass so that I'm safe and I can escape the slavery of my sin and walk in freedom to the promised land of God by that innocent lamb, Jesus Christ. He's our Passover. He's the one. So what's he deserve from you? How much? What percentage? He just deserves your all. If you're ready to give it to him, let's do it. Let's stand and sing together.